Hey there, this is Yarrow, and welcome to Vested Capital, episode number 24, featuring my guest, Gabrielle Musella, the co-founder and CEO of CoinRule. Vested Capital is a podcast about how people make money and put their capital to work. I interview startup founders, angel investors, venture capitalists, crypto and stock traders, real estate investors, and leaders in technology. Today, my guest, Gabrielle, is the co-founder of a basically a platform where you can do trading on autopilot. So that's the simplest way to put it. So you can set up a bunch of rules to connect with whatever kind of exchange you use to buy and sell crypto, whether it's Binance or Coinbase. And then you use CoinRule to set up rules for when you might want to buy or sell an individual you know, trading pair. So you might be buying Bitcoin and you, you tell CoinRule, I want to buy Bitcoin when it hits this price. You know, with this kind of volume, trigger the buy. And same with the other way, trigger a sell at the other end. So you can create kind of like automated robots that will buy and sell for you. Now, the starting point with a platform like CoinRule is to just learn how to use it, play around with the demo mode. You can do experiments basically just to understand it. But then it gets really sophisticated when you can either take a template that the guys at CoinRule have built. So they allow you to essentially copy the system they've created. They have a person in their team that helps design those, those basically bots for you. And this is coming in the future, I feel, but it's also kind of there already where other people are setting up their own custom rules. So people who are more advanced, more skilled, they're building out their own set of rules. They're basically building a trading robot. And eventually you'll be able to copy what they're doing as well. So copy trading of other investors via the platform. And as anyone who knows cryptocurrency, if you're looking into the really highly volatile altcoins, you know, all the different types of coins that are not so well known, kind of up and coming projects. Those ones can jump 100% in a day. Some of them I've even seen go up 3000% in one day. Of course, they also can lose that much as well that fast. So with a platform like this is you could potentially automate the buying and selling of a whole range of different trading pairs, different cryptocurrency tokens. And the idea is, you know, to capitalize on those gains. Obviously, investing is challenging. There's no guarantees. You know, CoinRoll as a platform does not guarantee any kind of result or any kind of outcome. Today, though, the whole point of this interview is A, to introduce this idea of what CoinRule does and talk about how Gabrielle and his co-founders built it, but it's also very much about Gabrielle himself. So Gabrielle is an interesting guy. You'll hear during this interview, he does have an Italian accent, so it might be a few parts. He talks quite quick. I know I got lost a couple of times where I didn't quite understand what he said, but I was very much able to keep the story on track and understand the most important aspects of where we were going and what he was building. In summary, he has done a lot of education in his past. He started more in the design space. He was interested in like, you know, city design. He then got interested in business, which led him more to, you know, interface design, online interfaces in particular. And that's kind of the career he then entered on. He had a job early on in Nokia. He traveled around Europe a lot, either for studies or taking on different jobs. And then eventually to, because he ran some startups as well, and he was in different accelerators. He, oh, there's so much to talk about with this interview. It really went over a lot of different countries and certainly a lot of different topics. I guess in summary, the best way to look at Gabriel's life, he's one part academic, he's one part working for other companies in interface design, another part starting startups. He's had three startups before he got into 
coin rule. So we hear about all three of those different startups and how they connected the lessons he learned all the way to the point where finally he meets his co-founders. They go to an accelerator in Budapest. They build the first version of coin rule. And then they actually need to get funding. So we talk a little bit about a crowdfunding campaign he did when the company almost went under due to COVID. And then all the way up to today with what they're working on and what they're building for the future. So, phew, big story, fun interview. I really enjoy talking to Gabriele. He's quite passionate, as a lot of Italians are. So I really enjoyed his vibe. I think you will too. Yeah, it's a great story of a up-and-coming cryptocurrency fintech startup. So coinrule.com is the place to go. And speaking of startups, of course, the sponsor for today's episode is mystartupinboxdone.com, which is a human being as a service. So basically, we provide a human being to, in fact, two assistants who will take over managing your email for you. So if you're drowning in too many messages in your email inbox or your social media inboxes or any maybe help desk inboxes, you can put in much like Coin Rule, where they have a technology-powered bot, we do the same thing with your email with a human being-powered service. Naturally, email, very complex. It's not something where you just want to hand it over to anyone. We've got highly trained, specialized assistants that focus on replying to other people's emails. And not just the act of replying, but the act of learning how to understand the person we're replying for. So we have to really study you, study what you do, study your role, study your big picture goals, study what your kind of interface is right now with your what you're doing, how you're communicating, how you're sending messages, how you write them, who are the most most important people in your life, in your in your business. All of that your assistants will learn and then get better at over time so they can take you out of the inbox. So they can reply to whatever it is, 90, 95, even 99% of your emails. And that can lead to a lot of freedom for you. So if you're spending too much time in your inboxes, if you're stressed out, you need simplicity, you want to gain back hours a day, consider inboxdone.com. We can assign you two assistants within the next few weeks and we'd love to help you. Go to inboxdone.com. That's I-N-B-O-X-D-O-N-E.com. Book a discovery call so we can learn more about your needs. All right, that's it from our sponsor. Now we're diving into the interview with Gabrielle Musella, the co-founder and CEO of CoinRule.com. All right, this is Yaro. Thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to talk to my guest, Gabrielle Musella. Gabrielle, thank you for joining me. Hi, Yaro. Hi. So, Gabrielle, you're the founder of CoinRule. Definitely want to talk about that and obviously a lot of your history. I'm actually very excited to talk to you because... You're in the crypto space. Obviously, it's a hot space right now. A lot of different companies starting up, but a lot of lack of knowledge, I feel, in this space as well. So I definitely want to talk to you about that, in particular, what you guys are doing with Coin Rules. So you're helping people with the trading aspect, in particular, automated trading. So before we dive into your background and history, would you mind just telling us, you know, what exactly is Coin Rule and, and why did you create it? Yeah, sure. So CoinRule helps retail investors to automate their investments. So we basically give automatic capabilities for trading to normal people like uh, me and you. We came up with this comment three years ago uh, because it was a big problem that we were trying to solve ourselves, me and, and my co-founders. And that's, uh, you know, there was nothing like that on the market. So we decided to create a company. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about that. But before we dive into CoinRule, I would like to kind of look at everything that came before it, I was diving into your, your LinkedIn and 
you have a lot of education, Gabrielle. So you studied a lot. Um, I'm seeing Harvard. I'm seeing MIT. I'm seeing London School of Economics. I'm seeing Polytechnico in Milano. You were also in Helsinki. So you yeah, were, you yeah, like yeah. to study. What, what, tell me, what was all that about? <laughs> yeah, I, I spent a lot of money on education. That, that, that's right. Since I started school, even at high school, I was always working and studying at the same time. So for me, Studying gives me the theory and all the structure that the you know the the that the, the intellectual part and then apply that into my daily work. So if I don't study, I, I cannot function basically. Even now I'm studying French and uh, you know I always need to have that intellectual kind of channel going on. <laughs> okay, so with all those degrees and qualifications, it sounds like you were doing it like you said because you like to study. But was there, uh, I guess, an end game? Did you study specific subjects because you wanted to become? A something after it or not? I fell in love with the design when I was really young. My main thing was to design user interface and user experiences. And, and back then, in 15 years ago, was not something that was straightforward. So I had to go through architecture, you know, product design, industrial design. And then eventually I ended up at the Media Lab in Helsinki in Finland when I did my exchange program. And I was like, okay, this is what I like to do. And then I, I really turned myself into basically a digital designer. I started also to learn programming languages, and also I went to the MIT as a visiting scholar. So for me, it was a journey. Always, uh, I started from more the artistic side and then design. And then at the end, I figured out that I really like business. So and then I started to study businesses, you know, at uh, several summer schools at, uh, you know, LSE, MIT, as we were saying. So I think at the moment, I'm a mix of design and business. And it's kind of an unusual part, uh, especially when, when I go and talk with some of the, some professors. So even with some people from the MBA, because... If you're a designer, you don't usually like numbers and, and crunching, uh, you know, big spreadsheets. I'm a maker, so I like to make stuff and, and to build interfaces, product, you know, digital product. But then I think I also like the, the practical part of making the business work and to create a, a use case around it that adds value to the users. So I think, yeah, in, in a nutshell, I'm a designer that turned into an entrepreneur. Fair enough. And, and the designer aspect, when I saw that in your history, I was thinking just user interface design. But it sounds like what you're describing there, you were interested in the, the whole topic of design. I mean, I was forced into that because I started into the architecture world, so big scale. So, you know, kind of planning big cities, human studies. And then I went to, you know, I, I did some courses about like, you know, systems design and infrastructure and, and buildings. And then I went down to the pixel. So in a way that was very useful, you know, going to the big scale, to the very tiny, tiny scale was really good because it gives you that type of holistic approach that sometimes you don't find when you study something because that's very specialized. That was my journey. I was almost forced into it because growing up in Italy, especially south of Italy, you don't have access to specific advanced course as you may have if you grow up in the UK or US. Got it. Okay. So once you realized you're an entrepreneur who is going to take your design passion and use it in business, I know that again, there's a lot of, I guess, what was the first after you finished studying, although I know you never really finished studying by the sounds of things, but when you decided, okay, I'm going to get a job or I'm going to start a business, again, I'm seeing a lot of roles you had. So did you get into user experience as an employee first? Was that like your first taste? I mean, no, I mean, uh, not really. I mean, I, I always worked since I'm like five, almost like, you okay. know, uh, so <laughs> I remember when I was young, I used to buy motherboards, motherboards from you know, old computers. And then I figured out that the battery actually was only running for one year. There was a small battery. And most of the people, they just throw away this motherboard. So I was buying this motherboard for like 
five euros, change the battery, and then reselling them for 50 euros. And I was like like eight years old. So I always had that kind of entrepreneurship mindset. And then I was working always as a hairdresser. And then around 13 years old, I, I discovered how, how to program in HTML and JavaScript. So I started building websites. So, uh, and that was really a very lucrative job. I mean, at, at, that, at that time, I kept always working as a freelancer, like, uh, you know, through all my university. So for me, it was kind of natural Already when I finished uni with my master's degree, I already had like something like five to seven years semi-professional experience. That, and in fact, uh, my first job in Finland was uh, at ActiveArk. I was working, I went to work at Nokia thanks to, to that job. And what's interesting is now that my first employee in Finland became my first investor in CoinRule and actually oh, nice. also our mentor and advisor. So it was amazing. So I always worked and studied at the same time and always around basically digital media and, and UX design. So there was never like, you know, this is my first job and always been a continuum. Okay. So the position in Nokia, that was your sort of post studies. I would say that. Of... Yeah. The very serious, yeah. The first serious uh, professional one. I was a UX designer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> what were you working on in there? Was it interfaces for, for what? Yeah. I think I remember there was like one big project was the intranet of uh, Nokia and the Nokia Siemens actually. And there were like a lot of data. So my specialization in my master's degree was about complex design and uh, information design when you have a lot of data to visualize. So I think I went there and yeah, I was like basically designing all these huge dashboards to kind of monitor uh, the, the production within within Nokia Siemens in terms of infrastructure and also employment engagement, all of that. And then I'd like a few other projects because that was an agency. I think the big one was the internet, a lot of data graphs, data visualizations. Okay. And did you, do you enjoy that? Was that a, a challenge for you? Or? I mean, yeah, yeah, no, a big challenge because all of a sudden, you know, you're like 20, I don't know, how old I was, like 22, 23. And they throw oh, wow. you big meetings with all the, you know, the executives or, you know, so you have to kind of learn how to, to deal with the corporate world and the specific language. And I mean, at that age, I was like, uh, I had like very long hair. I was very rebellious. <laughs> so <laughs> it was interesting. And, and in Finland, you know, Finland also, it's uh, in terms of, I, I love this, the Nordics, but you know, Finland, it's pretty different from, from what I, I'm used to, but it was interesting. Yeah. Right. You, you were born in Southern Italy, you said, right? Was that? Yeah. Yeah. In Na- Naples. Yeah. Yeah. Naples. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Naples, I've been to Naples once very briefly and I've been to not Finland, but I've on the other side, mm-hmm. uh, Denmark, and it's a little different. But you know what about Finland? I mean, actually, I mean, first of all, I wanted to go there because I, I grew up in the most corrupted city in Europe, right? I wanted to see what is the opposite. So I went to Helsinki, <laughs> that is the less corrupted city in Europe, right? And then okay. I went to the Media Lab at uh, Alto University. And man, it's amazing. All the people that came out of that, I mean, uh, one of them, uh, Tardy, now he's at Facebook and now he's at Coinbase. Another guy also started a company. In that Media Lab at uh, Alto University, actually, there were a lot of very good uh, good brains that went around the world and now they're working in big companies. So it was a good choice. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, it is interesting to look back on the people you met and where they, they end up, especially with your type of path where you studied in so many places. And, and clearly, you know, you would have met a lot of different, very smart people. What happened after Nokia? Did you move on to another role or what was next? So, yeah, Nokia, what happened Nokia? So I did that and then I went back. I got my degree for like, you know, briefly six months. Oh, yeah. And then I was just working this kind of job uh, event uh, with the s- several stands. And there was the Vodafone one, and they were like, uh, hey, do you know what is a widget, a JavaScript widget? I was like, oh, yes, sure. Like, do you want to have an interview in 30 minutes? I was like, what? <laughs> so I did the interview, and then they offered me, like, a job 
like to start in three weeks or something like that. So that was my first experience uh, in, in London at Vodafone. And then after that, I worked at UBS Bank. I think I had a very good selling point that was uh, this information design, data visualization, complex design. At that time, it was kind of a, a very a newborn uh, discipline. So everyone loved it. And I, that's also the advice I give to like young people that are starting their job. I have a selling point, a, a, you know, a specialty that kind of makes you, you know, get, get in the company and then after you can expand horizontally. I think for me it was data visualization and information design. What, what years were we talking about here when you say this was in demand? Was this... Oh my God, that's so long ago. I mean, at least in my brain, so, so long ago. So many startups ago, 2010, I think. Yeah, okay. not, I mean, not, not, not that long tomorrow. ago. Yeah, 2009, 2010, I think 2009, yeah, yeah, yeah. UBS was amazing. I was the youngest one in the team. They brought all the team from Morgan Stanley. There was a software they built at Morgan Stanley called Matrix, and they was built still in Adobe Flash. Actually, Flex. I don't know if you remember Adobe Flex. It was kind of an evolution of Adobe Flash in JavaScript. Anyway, okay. they brought. They did this beautiful trading platform, super cool, like spent a lot of millions. They brought all the team from Morgan Stanley to uh, UBS because UBS wanted to do the same. And I was part of this huge new incoming employees batch, and I was working together with a very cool uh, information architect. And there was this... Basically, we were 60 people, all UX designer and cool people, like in this very obsolete structure, right? A typical investment bank run, you know, the, the, if you go into the IT department, it's running waterfall methodologies or very structured. And all of a sudden, you have this designer coming in in all agile manners. And it was a challenge. You know, I had to tie it up every day, like a design, you know, put a tie on a designer. And yeah. Did you cut recently. your hair? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, at least yeah. I kept my hair. Uh, I, okay. I, I'm a little bit shorter, but I still kept them. I think I resisted there like uh, something like 10 months, super well paid. But then I quit and I started my first startup, my first company. Okay. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a disaster. That was, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was the first one. It was a digital agency that turned into a product company called Clabora. And it was the time where uh, Groupon was very famous. You know, Groupon, the Groupon model was, was yep. getting really, really fire. So we did the same stuff, but on mobile for clubbing and bars. And we had some traction, but then the team was not right. I made so many mistakes. I learned so much. Eventually, I had to go back into contracting, so consulting for, for, for some companies in London. Okay. Is there a particular mistake you remember from that startup that you took oh, into man, even today man. with CoinRoll? Yeah, I think I, I was just too much of a designer back then. So I was I was designing a lot, doing a lot of beautiful UI, but I was not really taking consideration all, all the technical limitations, all the product management methodologies how important is recruitment. So I was basically a designer with very good mockups and prototypes, but I was not really pushing for right financials, right business model and stuff like that. So I was a little bit more naive, as you would expect, you know, your first company, but also I was too idealistic, I would say. Okay, so, you, so after that, you went back to another job. Was there another startup yeah, later on? No, there, yeah, no, there was, there was a very interesting period then because I wanted to make it work, right? The agency and this product. Maybe. So we had a few clients, you know, we were, I, I think I had uh, Fabio and another guy. Yeah, I think I had two employees. Basically, I became the just-in-time consultant in London. Basically, all the recruiters in London, the one that, you know, all the agencies that needed someone for like two weeks just to come in and fix something or, you know, they were calling me because I was like, Look, if you need someone for a couple of weeks, I need to make extra bucks because I need to pay my, my employees and I need to make the, uh, the agency running. So, and I had a lot of contact of recruiters. So I remember there were like two, three years where I was doing a lot of these like two, three weeks projects for all sorts of clients, agencies in London, like digital agencies. 
So that was a bit stressful. Kept us going for a while till I was like, okay, that's it. Uh, let, let, you know, let's finish all of that. And I closed the company. Yeah. And then I went to the US. Because? Actually, actually, <laughs> the reason we went to the US was because we had a few conversations with some angels in Silicon Valley, right? In California. So me and one of my employees, we went to California to meet them. But also it was like half holiday. So on, on the way to, so we, went, we passed by Boston. And I remember the night before going to Boston in New York, when I did my master thesis, it was about smart cities and data visualization. There were a few mentions of this professor that is at MIT called Carlo Ratti. He has the, a lab called Sensible City Lab. And I always wanted to send him all my, my theoretical work or, or the book that I wrote and everything. So the night before going to Boston, I just I was like, yeah, fuck it, let's send it. So we sent it, and actually he replied. He was like, "Look, can you come tomorrow at twelve? You know, we have a we have a chat. There is the, the weekly meeting, so you can meet all the researchers." And then I remember I saw that email at one p.m. Already one hour late when I was already in Boston. So anyway, okay. imagine this like fat guy because I was like ten kilos more than that, long hair, running through the MIT. I just smashed into the door in the middle of this meeting, and everyone was like, "You know, who is this guy?" And and then and actually the the professor and his assistant that actually read the email was like, "Oh yeah, this is Gabe. Oh yeah, sit here, sit here." And then after that we had a chat, and then he read my stuff. He saw my portfolio and was like, "Look, you want to come here for you know to work with us?" For six months, like, oh, yes, sure. And then I went back to London. But then what happened, it's very interesting. I landed, the first time I landed in the US, there was a small mistake on the, on the visa. So there was basically a discrepancy between the visa and the presentation letter from MIT. So they actually sent me back. Oh, no. So I got stamped on the passport, like, you know, refused, blah, blah. And uh, since then, every time I go to the US, I get double checked from the, you know, the three, oh, four no. coughs. Uh, it was like, it was ridiculous. If you go now to MIT, especially to the Department of Architecture, and you ask, oh yeah, the guy that, has, that was sent back, uh, they still remember me probably. <laughs> and then <laughs> it was a crazy experience. And then, you know, I remember after that, every time I go on holiday, you know, my friends get so scared because they check all my bags. Then the second time I managed to get to the U.S. with the proper visa and everything, I've been like at MIT for six months. And then after that, I went to Northeastern University with uh, Barabaji, the one that discovered the network science. That was also a serendipity uh, type of event. And just to clarify, because it sounds mm -hmm. like you went, you're running the agency in London. You're heading to California for a holiday to meet some angels on the way you go to Boston, you just get offered something. So you say, yes, I'll, I'll do that for six months. Does that mean you just drop the agency and you... you know, yeah, because obviously yeah. the agency had a lot of problems. We, you know, the, we were like uh, just a few clients. It was not going anywhere. So yeah, we just closed it. Okay. How do your... Because you were traveling with your, your friends or your partner in the company or... That was... No, that was my employee. Yeah. David, employee. Okay. My employee. Yeah. Okay. So you, you close it down. So then you, you do six months in MIT. And then you said, was it California again when you did that network... Research, so it, no, then I was I was in Boston at yep. MIT for six months. Then what happens? The visa expires. I have my girlfriend in Boston. I go back to London for that six months. Basically, I start working in London for six months on a contract with the, what's called Group M, one of the company of WPP. It was a very interesting period. And then I start applying to a lot of jobs in the US. And I remember at the end, I got like actually an offer from Bloomberg in New York. And an offer from this lab in, in Boston at Northeastern University with Barabaji. That, uh, and, and it's funny how I met this professor because I read this book called Link. I think it's somewhere here, the book. Yeah, it must be up there. So it's like 10 years before I read this book on network science and I fell in love with that book. And then I was talking with someone in Boston. I was like, oh, you know, Barabaji actually is in Boston. I was like, where? 
can I come to visit him? He's like, yeah, sure, come. I go there. Obviously, the professor was not there. He was busy. But they said, like, you know what? Subscribe to the newsletter. You, you might get some more information. And literally two weeks after I subscribed, I received an email, job opening. They're looking for a data visualization designer. It was like, and I go and check who is the data visualization designer. At the moment, it was actually a friend of a friend. So actually, I talked to him, like, you know, what do you think about my top portfolio? He's like, yeah, I think you could be suitable. Just apply. And then I applied, and then I got the job, and then I, got, I went back to the U.S. And I stayed another one year and a half. Okay. Gabriel, I feel like we could keep traveling along this very <laughs> diverse <Yeah>. background <laughs> you've got. I do want to move the story forward, though. So I know yeah, there was yeah. some other startups. So what was the next startup you, you focused on? There was one that's called Flair. So basically, I come from a family, a generation, a generation of hairdressers. So I'm like the fifth generation. So I decided to actually give it a try to join the technology and also the hairdressing. So I came up with a CRM for hairdressing on mobile for mobile hairdressers. That was going well, but then we pivoted. It kind of merged into another company called Pelinko. This one, actually, I have still the mousepad. This one, Pelinko. So Flair merged into Pelinko. So Flair was going well, but we saw that the market was very organic, was basically a combine where you have to manage people and there was not much really technology, you know, cool technology. So we pivoted into Pelinko because that was solving a much better need, much interesting need. So the idea was that you could get paid on a mobile, wherever you are, just with the, with the, by tapping the card on your mobile phone by using NFC. Actually, now, I think WordPay released something like this just like a couple of years ago. And that one was not just for hairdressing, but it was actually for all contractors, all installers, plumbers. I was like doing a lot of research with the plumbers. Pelinko was there, was, uh, was kind of going, but I had like a big clash with my CTO. So at the end, you know, the company, basically we, we decided just to close it because the team was not right. So in these three companies, the first one about e-commerce clubbing, the second one about hairdressing, and the third one about this one about payments, I learned a lot of hard lessons. And then when I was at Mass Challenge, this accelerator in London, thanks to Pelinko, this company, I met what they are now my co-founders. That's Oleg and that's and that's Zenek. We met, uh, we all had previous companies, we had like these three companies, but we just fell in love with, uh, with crypto. Also, you know, we were getting along very well, so we just decided to, to actually focus on crypto and stop our previous company. And, I mean, now it's going well. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that in a second. I just wanted to connect one dot. I noticed with Paylinko, there wasn't a blockchain part of that, if I'm understanding my research. Is that true? It's good that we are talking about that. That's a big misunderstanding, and it comes okay. from the FCA. So we actually got accepted to the FCA sandbox, so the, you know, the financial authority that runs this program for startups. And in the PR, they just like released payments on blockchain. And I told them, look, this is wrong. I was like, yeah, look, we already published it, so I'm sorry. Now everyone thinks that that was on blockchain, but it's uh, not. And yes, but we got a lot of, a lot of visibility thanks to the FC. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. we're talking about 2016, right? Around about that time you were running Paylinko. So, because it sounds yeah, to me yeah. a lot like what you can do now with your standard mobile phone using the wallet that's built in to store, you know, you hold your credit card and you can just, or even just Square or, or something like that. Yeah. Is it similar? How, how is it different? Yeah. Paylinko is about accepting payments, not like sending payments. So if okay. you're a plumber, I come to your place, I install a new boiler, you need to pay me 500 pounds or dollars. Uh, you know, you don't have cash. Uh, usually a plumber just leave you an invoice and goes away. But okay. with Paylinko, you could actually tap on your phone directly, beep, and then you can accept the money. I'm not sure there is on the market uh, something that 
that goes through Visa, Mastercard, and then you receive the money directly frankly, on your phone. I'm thinking like Square in the U.S. with with their they originally had Square. The... Yeah, Square probably yes. You still need to have a, a, a separate a separate device. Uh, but right. yeah, in essence, the proposition is very similar. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right, but you didn't have a device. You just had a, uh, an application. Yeah, yeah. On the phone. Our, our thing yeah. was that you're on application for free on the phone. Okay, yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah. Let's bring it up to the the current project with CoinRoll. Obviously, you had a a very diverse background from the education experience, working clearly in all kinds of different roles. A lot of it in in user interface design, but all over the place. Three startups prior to CoinRoll, so you had. You have like the perfect combination of experiences, skills, education that everyone looks for in, in a founder. Really, I know, uh, you know, speaking to other investors, they love to, to meet someone like you who's starting something. Maybe before we talk about the investing side, though, when you met your, your current co-founders, was it a case of we already have an idea, let's do this, or we don't have an idea, but I like you guys, I want to do something together? Like, how did that come together? It came together... That basically, I was using, I mean, I bought Bitcoin in 2012, right? And then I okay. sold it and I made 6%. And I was so happy because I really, <laughs> I was working at university and I didn't have much money, literally. I needed money to go on holidays. Okay. And then I, I, in 2016, I went to check my Coinbase account, just like, well, let's see. And I saw this other coin called Ethereum and I started buying it and it was going up and up. So I bought it at $20 or something. And then I fell in love again with crypto. And then at night, while I was, I think I was running Pelinko. I was designing an app similar to Blockfolio. It is a portfolio app to track your coins. But my goal was to buy a house with crypto. So I wanted to have a kind of a sectorialized, goal-oriented portfolio app, right? So I started designing this one. And then after that, I started thinking I wanted to do some automation. I started sketching just like some some uh, some idea to how to, to do an interface to automate my trades. So when I, I talked to Oleg, I already had this idea and I showed him this idea. The funny thing is that we were in the same accelerator, me and Oleg. This accelerator was at Tobacco Docks in London, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a former tobacco uh, factory. And we had huge tables, like 20 meters long, right? And there was, I mean, I don't know if you, if you saw some picture of Oleg. Is this a uh, ginger guy, like all funny, like, you know, with glasses. And he was super smart, right? And then every time I was, I was working nine to five at that time, I was contracting. And then my team at Pelinko, four people, I was, was basically paid by me by, you know, taking the money from the salary and putting it there. So nine to five, I was working. After five, I was going to the accelerator to work with my guys. So I was super stressed. And there was this guy from the other side of the table that every time wanted to meet me and talk to me, have a coffee with him. And I was like, man, I don't have time for this stuff. <laughs> I'm like, I have two jobs. But then eventually after three months, I said, like, okay, look, 10 minutes, what do you want? And then we started talking and I showed him the, the sketches. And then it's like, oh, this is cool. You know, and then we started talking more about crypto. So the idea was already there. Oleg wanted to do something in crypto. Zenek as well came a little bit later, but you wanted to do something more about fintech as well. So I think there was a mix of things, the initial idea plus the convergence. But it was the perseverance of Oleg really wanted to meet me that that uh, you know kind of started the spark. Okay. But you were all in this accelerator for different reasons. Like you were there for Paylinko and they were there for other yes. companies? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So. Oleg got like, I think a mentorship platform that companies can use to have people mentoring each other or something. And Zenek had like a, a super safe authentication system. Actually, yeah. Zenek company, he also pivoted from something else uh, that was something, uh, something like sexual education platform. And then it became okay. a login system. And then, so yeah. Oh, wow. Pivot, crazy pivots yeah. there. I started <laughs> okay. pivoting, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys are all in there. You're talking about this idea. <laughs> that idea, though, is not any of the three ideas you're currently building individually. 
So how do you decide to basically kill three projects to come together to start CoinRule? How, do, how does that conversation happen? Oh my God. So for me, for me, it was very, very, very easy because again, I had a co-founder called Gigi. She's a super cool girl and, and she's Chinese, right? And she was in London. She was still on a visa from the university. But then all of a sudden, she received a letter from the, um, from the border uh, police saying, like, look, your business expired. You need to run away from the country. <laughs> so basically, I lost a, a co-founder because she has basically been almost deported. Again, all this like, visa problem. So yeah. anyway, she went away. Yeah, my CTO at that time, the good one went away. I got another CTO. Uh, so the product was not going anywhere because I couldn't build the product by myself. And my funds were really like uh, very, very low. So for me, it was a no-brainer, like, you know, okay, either I get an investment here or I can perceive another interesting idea, always in the fintech crypto space. Oleg as well, I remember when he showed me, showed me his product, it was working, but the UI was just like, oh my God, it was like something from the 70s, like, so I was like, oh, like, I think you should do some more work in terms of design. <laughs> and also Zenek, he, he didn't find that, I think, I, I don't know the full story with Zenek, but I think he didn't find a way to monetize uh, what he built. And actually, Zenek, his co-founder, died. Oh, no. That's a very bad story, actually. We, we are laughing about Actually, he died. He had a kind of leukemia, like cancer. Like, within a week, he died. So, I mean, in startup world, like, the crazy stuff happened. Anyway, so in a way, you know, we were after... I was on Pelingo for, like, uh, at least a couple of years. So, I was already, like, a bit of tired. And you know, I didn't see much of a product market fit. And also, much of, of a good team. So, I failed in, in, in recruiting the right people. Also because, you know, recruiting when you don't have money, it's very, very hard. I managed to do it several times, but you don't get the top-notch people, right? You get also the interns, you get young people because you have to play with what you get. So I think, yeah, we were a bit tired and also crypto was basically making us a lot of money already because we were buying Ethereum. So we saw a lot of opportunities. And then we fell in love also with technology and now, you know, we prefer more when there's a bear market because that's where you have the most interesting ideas instead of... When there's a bull market, I just... You just get a lot of people into the space that just just want to make more than just speculators. Okay, so through a, clearly a very diverse range of circumstances, you all realized you could come together to start and actually work on CoinRoll. Did you, all three of you say, okay, we're shutting down our current projects? Or did you say, let's work on this together on the side? And, and how did you build the first like MVP? I was very strict with Oleg because then I came after one year about with Oleg. So look, uh, we either work or not because I don't like. So let's give it us ourselves one month, two months to actually close the other companies or not close, but just to park the project. So yeah, I think it just happened naturally. I kept the uh, Pelinka open a little bit because I kept Pelinka as, uh, as a brand had a lot of success. I got invited for two, three years to the to the bankers dinner. I was sitting, you know, with the with the Revolut, Monzo, you know, the Mark Carney. I was. Thanks to Pelinko because actually the brand was very strong. So I kept it open so that we could receive still these incoming leads from like events or pitching, uh, pitching opportunities. For two, three months, I kept it open. But then, yeah, after I went full time straight away, Oleg still had like a part time job. And after one year, I think Oleg, Oleg, uh, yeah, just also gave up to the, the job. So I was basically the first one to go full time on coin rule. And I remember a very specific moment where 2019. It was around, I think, January 2019. Finally, we got accepted into an accelerator that was an Hungarian accelerator in Budapest, right? So first of all, we got these incoming leads, like saying, hi, guys, you want to participate in this accelerator from, for Pelinko, right? So it was like, and as I was like, look, now I'm working on CoinRule. You would like to apply with these, uh, with these other comments. And they were, okay. We got accepted. They gave us uh, under 25K. 
plus three months of acceleration in Budapest. So it's very funny because a London-based company, all international, you're, you're in the epicenter of the startup you know, ecosystem in Europe. We have to go to Budapest to actually fundraise and have an accelerator. <laughs> yeah. and, and Techstar didn't accept us. All the other good accelerators in, in Europe didn't accept us. Anyway, so we got accepted. And then I remember at this that one night, we were on the phone with Dolan and he didn't want to, he didn't have the, I think at that moment, he didn't want to kind of quit the, uh, this job, this uh, four days a week job. You know, it was like, look, we can do, maybe I can come there the weekend, I can come back to London, maybe it is. It's like, look, I'm taking a Uber right now, let's meet at this pub next to your place. It was 11, 11 p.m. at night. It's like, yeah, let's talk about this. <laughs> because that's where a lot of entrepreneurs fail to make the jump. When it, some entrepreneurs they do it very early and it's a mistake because you need at least six months to set up your company and you know to, to actually sort out all the admins and operation and the basic things. Some people they don't jump and they actually they don't have the opportunity. But in this case, we had an offer there and all it was just like too cautious. So we had the department like, look, we either do uh, we either join the accelerator, you come full time, or for me we close the company. I'm like, sometimes I'm just black and white. And and it was like, okay, let me think. I understand because, you know, that job was nice and four days a week was perfect, but we found a good solution that he did one, he came to Budapest in March. He did one month working remotely from them so he could kind of juggle the two jobs. But then after he was full time on Congo. And that's where the actual company started because we were four of us in one place, including the accelerator. And in fact, we won as a best startup in accelerator. We did the under 25K. We also got more investments from other two angels. The guy from Finland that were my first employees. So everything came together. It was very intense, not stressful, but intense because I also broke up with my girlfriend after five years because I went to Budapest. So yeah, it was, it was all of a sudden I changed my life. I'm in Budapest. I grew up with my girlfriend. Finally, we have a company that has funding and this kind of, you know, it's going well. So it was a roller a typical roller coaster. Okay. Did you cut your hair by then? Were you nice and no, short? No, no, yeah. There was already <laughs> cut much before. <laughs> okay. I just want to keep the haircut story going. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk exactly about CoinRule. So mm-hmm. you built the first version. When did you get your first customer? And like, what was that first version? Yeah. So the MVP was made in four weeks during the accelerator. Yeah. We had the few first, first, first customer. I think the building the community of 100 users, the first one was not too hard. Thanks to my co-founders, because Oldeck is very good in creating that momentum. He's a very good networker. Yeah, we had like the first customer try, you know, trading like 500, 1,000. The first one, we had like a lot of bugs. So some of them, we also, we were like basically giving the product for free and also being very cautious. Maybe just before we talk more, yeah. it'd be really good just to break down what does CoinRule allow you to do? Like, how does it yeah, work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, with CoinRule, you can do an automation, right, uh, on trading. So instead of buying and selling at specific time, you know, and sitting in front of a laptop at night or when the price drops, you can actually say, if this happens, do that. So it's like FTTT for crypto. So the structure is always like, if Bitcoin goes down 3%, buy this other coin at a specific price, given certain conditions. And then you can actually set up which condition. You can say volume, price, uh, other, other indicators. Uh, so it's very straightforward. You, know, you can say if Bitcoin goes down, buy this other fund. Or if this happens, do this and that. And it's all very visual, very simple to use, no programming skills needed. It's a no-code platform. And you can create more than 10,000 different automatics, basically. And you can also use some of the templates we already have. Now, I know when I first heard about CoinRule and I started looking into it, I was like, but I don't actually transfer and trade on CoinRule. It 
interfaces with the actual exchanges like mm-hmm. Binance and, and Coinbase and so on. So how does how does that work? Do you have to like API in so that CoinRule can trigger transactions through through those platforms? Is that right? We, we give superpower to, to the exchanges, basically. We are laid on top of Coinbase, Binance. We have more than uh, 11 exchanges integrated. So the way it works, you can just create an API key that is a string of, of, of letters and numbers on your exchange. Uh, so you do your registration there. Your wallet is on the exchange. We don't touch your money. But then you copy and paste this key on CoinRule, and then the two machines are connected. And you build the automation on CoinRule, and then CoinRule send the buying and selling instruction to the underlying platform when it's needed. So CoinRule is like a robot that's trading on my exchange account. Now, the other thing I thought of when I also first heard about CoinRule was like, I could see myself just giving myself like a price point I'm happy to buy at. But then I thought the true power here is that like what the big financial firms do where they're setting up algorithms to basically uh, constantly like do fast trading throughout the day just to take advantage of you know sudden drops and and i was like i wouldn't even know how to create that structure and i believe coin rule does provide some kind of templates to start with how does how did you d- design that we have a head of trading in our company and he designs all the templates. Now at the moment we have around 200 uh, different templates that you can use on your coin of choice. So obviously we have access to all the coins that you have on Binance, on Coinbase. So there are thousands of thousands and we give also the templates. And what's interesting is that we, we are not like a black box investment uh, tool where you put the money, you go away and you get your 5% per month or whatever. But you actually see what's happening. So you, even when you select that template, you see the structure and you can decide what's the amount here, what's the amount there, what's the price point, and then you press play yourself. Thank you. I appreciate the explanation because I want to talk about the founding story here, but I really need to understand what you guys do. So that's mm-hmm. really great. And I'm assuming not all those features were there from day one. Like you had to kind of start adding things as you went. The MVP was probably just a, a, some basic rules. Like if this is this price, buy and, and away you go, right? Mm-hmm. I also know you did a crowdfunding campaign mm. as well as later on an actual raise, which is the most recent raise. And you got some amazing backers, uh, Kayak co-founder, 8sleep was in there. I've got an 8sleep bed. Yeah. So but maybe we can do this in order with the last sort of 10, 15 minutes we have. So you guys get some funding from Budapest with the accelerator there. You get yeah. some angel investors after you finish it. You've built the MVP. Your co-founder so, was able to sort of find the first hundred and then you sort of go from there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, with with MKB Bank, the, the Hungarian accelerator was a bit more complex because they gave us 25K and they were like, okay, you know, we love your combine stuff, but since you're crypto, our board of directors cannot approve uh, the extra 100K if you don't bring a co-investors. Oh. And they tell us like these four weeks prior to the end of the program. We're like, holy, you know, oh my God, where are, where are we going now? And then that's where we went crazy. Like, uh, and it was difficult to find the angel. And thank God that you know my ex boss uh, came, and then actually they added the the extra, I think, seventy five k. And that was the first round. But then what happened? There was a pandemic, right? Fast forward, you know, there's a lot of stuff. We built a lot of things, and then a fast forward, we we arrived in March, where we were starting the new fundraise. This is March twenty twenty. We had a term sheet on the table for like something two hundred fifty k from one fund in London. Literally, the time sheet was, was something like the 5th of March and the pandemic in London hit on the 8th of March when it, when it became real. Oh, wow. Literally, like, and, and the, the investor sent us an email like, look, guys, the valuation we gave you, now we cannot give it anymore. I think it was valuation of 4 million pounds. 
I mean, if you want the same deal, the valuation will be 1.75. It's like, what? Like, oh, yeah, because we need to save money for our portfolio companies. So I'm sorry. This, and I was like, okay, we are basically fundraising at the same valuation of one year ago. This is not good. Like, we're just giving out, uh, you know, shares like, like this. But at the same time, the, we had uh, very, very, uh, not, not, much, not much cash in the bank. So it was, that was very stressful because between March and basically June, we have to, we had like very low money. We, we had to put people on for low. We had to fire two people and the team shrinked to, to five people. And what was interesting, also the, the, our employees by themselves, they're like, look, I can cut my salary by 20%, no problem. So it was amazing. Like, you know, I really saw how they, they were stepping up and helping the company. So we had to basically build everything from scratch, all, all the fundraise. And that's why we came up with the idea of, of uh, doing a crowdfunding campaign. I came up with, with this, uh, sometimes, you know, being a designer helps because you have that creative part that comes and sometimes really helps. So I don't know why I built a page like Invest in Us on our website, right? And I put it on, on, on top menu. I don't even know if it's legal. Probably it's not. But let's assume it's legal. <laughs> So you go there, okay. and it was a, I was like, look, before we do Cedars, let, let me try just what I want to do with a crowdfunding campaign by ourselves on, on, on the website. And then I saw that a lot of people were requesting like to invest 5K, 10K, 3K. So we built a huge backlog of at least 50 people that wanted to invest some amount of money on our, in our company. Because what we had, thanks to another growth hacking trick that the previous year we built, we had a lot of traffic on the platform. So even if so, even if these people were not becoming users, they were actually they were knowing about us and they, they liked the company, the about us page and stuff. So they actually wanted to invest. Do you mind sharing what that growth hack was, Gabriel? Just just out of curiosity. Yeah, yeah, that's I've, I've told everyone that by now. We built a machine that's very so. There was this friend of mine in Budapest. We got this big house with two startups. This friend of mine told me about this system to build a lot of landing pages and really clicked with me. So I went off on a tangent. And I got a lot of freelancers and people. It took like 13 people in different in three months to actually build this stuff. But it's basically, we have a matrix of awards. And from that matrix of awards and synonymous and variables, we generate thousands of thousands of landing pages that rank very, very well. So some of them rank first position on the first page of Google. And I'm talking about 160,000 landing pages. that And we generate every month are 20,000. So we have this machine now that continuously generates landing pages with the specific content, you know, with the keywords of exchanges, coins, crypto strategies, and obviously, so it generates a lot of traffic, a lot of traffic. Okay. okay. And, uh, and then okay. there's like the similarity of the pages that, you know, Google kind of does rank that. So there's a lot of work to do also in understanding the, how original is the content. So thanks to the trick, we had a lot of traffic. So these people, basically, we built a huge backlog of people that wanted to invest. And thanks to that, basically, we then started building the crowdfunding campaign on Cedars. And, uh, and basically, the way it works on Cedars or any crowdfunding platform is that you have to bring at least 40 to 50% of the funds you want to fundraise. And then when the campaign opens, you're already at 50%. There's a moment when people join. Right? Oh, so actually, crowdfunding okay. helps for amplifying your, your raise. It doesn't help really to fundraise. But we built a lot of these okay. things. So we stayed in that position. So low salaries, a lot of people interested. We started the crowdfunding campaign. And at some point, the lockdown finished. It was July. We rented a huge villa in Crete, in Greece. We just went, uh, all the team plus some friends. We had 20 people in, in Greece. And we were working from there. Uh, the, we, we sent the, the video maker down there. So we shoot the video, the very nice video that is online. So we had this beautiful video. We invested a little bit of money on that. And then I remember we, we started with uh, something like, I think, 250K. That was the target of the campaign. But then in, in private mode, 
because you can have also a pre-sale. We already reached something like uh, 240. And then in private mode, the, the second day of the crowdfunding campaign, when it was still private, we just went 100%. And it was like, you know, what is the, that makes sense. We already at 100%. Anyway, and, and we are still in private. So I had to open the campaign very quickly. And then we went on the platform. Uh, you know, there was so much momentum that we, we, we did that, I think, 202%. So we raised 550K pounds. And uh, so it went very well. We never did any marketing till that point. We were very, all, everything was organic with the growth hack. So I think the crowdfunding campaign was the first kind of brand awareness uh, type of initiative we did. And it worked very, very okay. well. Yeah, it brought us to the radar of a lot of VCs and, and angels. Yeah. What was the valuation for the crowdfunding? Because obviously it was four mil- million pounds before. Do you remember? Was it? I mean, no, from, from the from accelerator, the first investment was in pound 1.2 pounds. Was very low. And then for the crowdfunding was 4.6. I'm always mistaken because okay. between dollars and pounds. I mean, we we can look it up, but that's that's yeah, fine. Yeah. It it was similar to what you originally were hoping to raise before. The, yeah, the yeah, yeah. It was it was a, it was a bit it, more, so. but still kind of realistic. Yeah. I remember in uh, in October yeah. when we fundraised, we had 10k. We were making 10k a month since last November in 2020 till now. We made basically a, a 10x. So now we're making around 100k a month. So the market, you know, really picked up, but also we solved a few problems on the platform, and there, but also the marketing helped. Okay. And then uh, what happened? We were, I remember in May, with the market, this May, this 2021, we already were talking with some VCs to do kind of a series A. So at uh, high valuation, all of that. And the market was really bullish. So it was May. We were making something like under 60K a month. So it was very good numbers for a series A. And then we received a message from YC, Y Combinator. Now, we have played for Y Combinator for like, I don't know, like six, seven times. Every year, we, it's like a kind of religion. We just have... You know, they actually reach out to us when we have this uh, high MRR. And, and it's not really typical because usually you go to Wagomir when you don't have any revenues, right? Anyways, yeah, yeah. we had a chat, they, you know, they interviewed us. It's a 10-minute interviews, 10 minutes interviews. It's very, very, very hard. They just shoot like questions one after the other. But eventually we made it. So I remember uh, Hajj, our group partners, he asked us for a call at 11 p.m. We were like super tired on a Friday night. And he was like, guys, you are in. And we were like... Literally, I just destroyed because we have been working all week. Uh, I was like, oh, are you not happy? Yes, we're happy, Arch, but yeah, it's 11 p.m. We have, we have not been <laughs> sleeping for like a few days. We're there in California. And then we, we joined Wacom. I was, I was a bit skeptical at, at the beginning because basically in this batch, there were like 408 companies and only around five, 10 companies were at our stage in terms of uh, monthly revenues, right? So usually they're like, they're much early stage companies. So I didn't yeah. want to join also yeah. because we had to move the company to the U.S. And I, I strongly, I mean, I'm European. Oh, okay. I strongly believe in Europe and uh, I live in the U.S. I love it, but I don't like specific thing of that uh, kind of society system. So I didn't want to move the company in the U.S. I like the U.K. the UK legislation. I like Seed Legals. That is a platform that allows you to do everything uh, you know, in the U.K. in terms of uh, fundraising and and legal you know documents for startups but anyway so it was a hard decision for me but i eventually understood that it was the right one so the program was just you know it's just great yeah once you're part of that that network work combinator you're like a superman basically. you have a, you have access to okay. everything everyone we got uh, mentorship from the founder of uh, airbnb the founder of stripe the founder of uh, twitch so many good people everyone is uh, willing to help they really, they have like a very, very good internet called Bookface, not Facebook, but Bookface. And that's the Bible. There's like a lot of stuff. There is, there is a lot of very, 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 very interesting and important information. 
So yeah, Gabrielle, I have so many questions. I, 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 you've got to go in about five minutes, so I feel like I could, I need another half an hour. But we'll, we'll wrap <laughs> it up. I do want to know. Clearly, you're at a, you're still a fairly early stage, but you've, you're, you've already grown quite rapidly. Where do you want to take Coin Rule, and and how do you plan to grow it to mm. the next? phase of the life yeah that's i mean we have some plans but that's uh it's very hard so what we did we, we fundraised now i think 2.2 million dollars and you know as you said we had the founders of twitch joining fitbit kayak navaravikan to a fund the guy from eight sleep uh, zilika capital so very good investors we also declined 500k from binance for example because we didn't want to dilute ourselves much but now basically we have to spend money so we have been very frugal till now and we are very good at that but we are learning in the company how to spend money. Uh, so we are recruiting uh, two extra developers, uh, designers. The team is, is becoming, uh, now it's like uh, 14 people, but it's becoming uh, like 20 people. So we have a few main features that we are deploying. Uh, one is the backtesting. So we want to build the simplest backtesting in the world. So the ability for you, if you build a strategy, to actually go back in time and test the strategy on a different market condition. How it will they perform in 2018, for example, so that you can actually have an informed guess how the strategy works and you can tweak it before launching it. Uh, that's very important. And then we are also working on a marketplace. So an ability of, of uh, creating a strategy, selling it on the marketplace and also to uh, to do copy trading. So you can actually copy someone else's trades the same way you do on eToro. So these are just two of the big modules that we are building. But then there is also a tap into the DeFi space and other exciting features. So there's like... Specific stuff we, can, we are doing, and uh, now we are using also OKR um, so to, to, to make us more focused. We also changed the way we work in the product team. So now we have like big modules and everyone works on that thing for like one month instead of before we are doing a lot of small things. So I think, yeah, those are the main, uh, the main uh, actions we are taking. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, it does feel like, you know, it is almost like day one still. Yes. Your platform, for a lot of people, it's a, a place to... You set up a free account and actually just mm-hmm. use the the demo trading account just to learn how this whole you know automated trading system works. So I think it's fantastic. I'm assuming, like you said, you've got over was it 100,000 users, but yeah. I wasn't sure how many are paying. But you've got uh, right now, anyway, I'm reading like a $30 a month plan and a $60 a month plan, which I'm assuming are for the more advanced people who yeah. get comfortable with that. That's like basically that's kind of like the customer path right they become beginners they learn they get comfortable and then they upgrade and start using you know the paid version correct yes 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 i think the, the, the i mean the best way to 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 just join coin is to try for, you know the the free account the demo rules uh, you know you can build the two or three demo rules just have fun and then once you see that something works after a few weeks then you can actually say okay let me try and upgrade into the 20 dollar plan and and see, uh, you know, if actually my my hypothesis works in the real market. Yeah, I really like the idea of, of copy trading at some point too. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine people, you know, you'll have those superstars who will show up and come up with these amazing algorithms mm-hmm. that they built, and then you can just click copy and and yeah. away you go. So that'll be uh, that, that's very quite groundbreaking. I know Etoro kind of made it happen with just general trading, but yeah, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. With with uh, the the diversity of coins, there's so many altcoins. Exactly, now. It's yeah. So hard all to all keep the up, yeah, right? the low cap coins, the new ones that have more uh, kind of the ability to grow grow faster. Yeah, they jump around like crazy. So mm-hmm. you've got to go, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for sharing. Obviously, CoinRule.com, the place to go. Uh, any other websites you want to share? I think uh, you know also on our blog and our medium, you can find a lot of uh, strategies. We also publish the strategy of the week on Instagram, so you can have a look at that. There is uh, Ruben, our head of trading, that uh, knows a lot about crypto, so he always shares his, his tips. 
Awesome. I feel like we should do this again in a year or two just to see, you know, what's the next few phases. But thank you, Gabrielle. That was a lot of fun. Let's do that. Perfect. Thank you, Yaro. Have a good day. You too. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gabrielle Musella, the CEO and co-founder of CoinRule.com. I really enjoyed it because I felt we were able to do a solid review of kind of like these three key parts of his life, his experience within education, in design, his time working for other companies like Nokia, so many other companies as well, and then his three startups that he had before he then launched CoinRule. You should definitely check out his LinkedIn if you get a chance. It was uh, challenging for me as an interviewer to go, where do I take this? Because there's so many different points on his LinkedIn. I could have probably asked him for three hours worth of stories, but we have we had only an hour, so I had to squeeze it in there. I do feel like it's uh, there were a couple of points that really stood out to me that I just want to briefly highlight to you um, as a way to also remind myself of them. One of the, the things I thought was really interesting was how Gabriel talked about keeping his previous startup, Paylinko, which was a fintech startup for micropayments or payments to contractors. And I thought that was interesting that he kept it going, even though he was well and truly focusing on coin rule. He kept Paylinko going because they were getting a lot of invites to pretty prestigious events with other fintech companies. And that was obviously great for networking and probably meeting potential investors, maybe staff members, things like that. And it shows the power of being in a hot topic area or hot hot industry. In fact, I think Gabrielle even said that. He was like, if you're a new entrepreneur or even someone young considering what to study, focus on the emerging markets because there's just so much interest. That means you can either get a job at a, at a startup, you can certainly potentially start your own company and perhaps it will be easier for you to get funding and very likely be easier for you to get into accelerators, which is the other point I want to share with you. I really found it interesting how Gabrielle was in lots of different accelerators. I, I counted at least three during this interview, Early Days Accelerator, the Budapest Accelerator, and then Y Combinator as well. I felt like for him, it just seemed normal. Like you, you go to an accelerator as like a stepping stone, almost like a step one once you've got your idea and your co-founders because it's going to get you that initial, whatever it is, $20,000 up to $100,000 It'll help you to build an MVP, to really commit to the fact that you're starting a startup. And obviously, there's all the connections to investors and so on as well. So if you kind of marry those two ideas, being in hot emerging markets and going into accelerators, it's a pretty clear path for a new entrepreneur today, which is really wonderful to say that there are so many different accelerators. And let's point it out too, how cool is it that you can travel to these exciting countries? I mean, I know he said he was a little upset that they did not get to stay in London where they all were at the time. So they had to go to Budapest instead. But as a person, I'm a digital nomad, I love to travel. So the idea of kind of connecting travel with your business, I know accelerators are very time consuming and, and you have to kind of be all in. But you could certainly get a bit of experience of the other new city you're in when you're going through the accelerator. So anyway, I found all this very exotic, very exciting, all the topics I love, new technology with crypto, startups, obviously world travel, just the diversity of people and places. So I really enjoyed listening to Gabrielle. And I feel like we're very much at the early days of CoinRule as well. I recommend you head to CoinRule.com and click that invest button if, if you have a bit of money so you could possibly get into their next funding round. I'm not sure if they're still going to do any kind of crowd-based funding, but there might be an opportunity too as they continue to grow. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this one. If you did, I would love you to share it. I feel like there's a lot of good reasons to share this interview with anyone who's interested in startups or 
maybe anyone who's in the academic world just to hear how Gabrielle transitioned from academic to working to startup founder and so on. Share this episode with them. It's number 24 of Vested Capital. You can go to vestedcapitalpodcast.com, which will take you to my blog and the page where I keep the podcast. You can also subscribe on Spotify, on Apple iTunes, on Google Podcasts, on Amazon Podcasts, even in the Audible app where you listen to audiobooks. You can type in Vested Capital and find this and then hit the subscribe button or the follow button or it could be the plus button whatever button they have for you to stay a subscriber you'll get every episode as i release them you'll have access to all the previous episodes of vested capital plus all the best episodes from my previous podcast or the previous version of this podcast which was called the yarrow podcast and before that the entrepreneur's journey podcast so i've highlighted about 50 more of my best episodes in there so you've got plus 70 now I think you can dive into a very much focused on startups, investing, technology, all of the cool topics that Vested Vested Capital covers. Okay, that's it for me. My name is Yarrow. I look forward to speaking to you on the very next episode. Bye-bye.